Hello, and welcome to It Means What It Means, the podcast in which a guy with some college and a day job asks experts questions about biblical studies. Today on the podcast, Heather McCumber talks with me about her book, Recovering the Monstrous in Revelation. I decided to go ahead and release this one in time for Halloween because I'm pretty ahead of schedule on things. And on the topic of the schedule, I realized you probably don't want to hear me talk about every episode that I have, that I was probably just externalizing some anxiety that I have around the idea that people will think I'm not working. I will do my best to not do that anymore. Just know a lot of that on my end will be alleviated by virtue of the fact that episodes will be coming more regularly, and so I will have less reason to believe that any audience I'm building is going to feel like I'm neglecting them. Here's my conversation with Heather McCumber. Heather McCumber, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. It's fantastic to have you. I've been really excited about this one. But before we get going with the interview, can you tell the guests a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am an associate professor of biblical studies at Providence University College, which is in Manitoba, Canada. So right in the middle of Canada. Um, I teach mainly in the Old Testament, but I do work also in Revelation. And I'm originally from Ottawa, Ontario, so I had to make the trek out here to Manitoba. So I've been teaching here for about seven years. Okay. And as you said, this is in New Testament. This is Recovering the Monstrous in Revelation. And it's from a series, which I, I didn't realize until after I had finished reading the book, because I read a, an ebook version. So is there anything you could tell us about the horror in scripture series? Sure. There is. So this is the third in the series. There is two that went before and they cover different aspects of horror and the monstrous and scripture. So I think there's only three so far, but yeah, they're very different. The one that came before mine is by Brandon Graffius, Reading Bible with Horror, I think is the title. And he really looks at the genre of the horror movie and slasher films and relating it to different passages in scripture. But he does have a whole chapter on monster theories. Horror philosophy and monster theory go really nicely together. And his book really captures that, especially if you're a pop culture fan. That's a great book to look at. Okay. I, I'll be honest. A lot of my interest about this book is that I really, I think I just thought of monsters as I'll know them when I see them. And I'm not really into horror. I don't spend a lot of my time consuming horror uh, content. And actually what I'm wondering is, was this a project you were already working on or was it a collaboration because of the series or the horror in scripture? So I also do not I do not function well with horror movies. And so there is a bit of a joke here at my work that the one person who's working on monsters can't watch scary movies. I force myself sometimes to, but it's not my comfort zone. I was already working on angels in my doctoral degree and already had some inklings that angels were a bit more monstrous or scary than we generally are comfortable with admitting. And I had started working on Daniel, especially looking at the prophet or the seer as it inter as he interacts with the angels. And then I started getting to Daniel 7 and the monstrous beast there. So my first article was with Journal Hebrew Scriptures, where I wrote on monster theory and the beasts rising out of the sea in that chapter. So I'd already been working on monster theory. And then I think I was starting to think I'd written another article, actually, because I thought if I did Daniel and the monsters, I might as well go to Revelation 13 and do the monsters there coming out of the sea because there's, there's reuse and why not? 
And so I'd already then written a second article in biblical interpretation on Revelation and monsters. Then a call came out for the series, the book series. And that's when I thought, I'll try. I'll see how it goes. And yeah, it's been a lovely relationship to have with that series. And uh, to have a series specifically focused on monsters also is really fantastic. And so monster theory isn't just saying, oh, look how gross and cool and scary this thing is. What, can you describe what monster theory is to, to me and to everyone else? Absolutely. So monster theory is, it's interdisciplinary and it began outside of biblical studies. So the person everyone goes to is Jeffrey Cohen, and he has an essay, he has a book, but in specifically has an essay called Monster Culture, Seven Theses. And in it, he goes through seven major arguments of what makes a monster. And they, it, it seems quite simple, but the more I read it, the more I realize how much he is really deeply engaged with philosophy. And so when you start into monster theory, I didn't realize how much philosophy I was going to be reading, but... A lot of it is things like, like the monster never dies would be one of the arguments or the monster always escapes or the monster stands at the boundaries between possibility. And so there's lots of these seven theses that are very helpful as starting points to try to understand what a monster is. But in, I guess in general, monster theory is looking at monsters in a text and a movie and a culture to try to understand how that monster helps us to read the culture, to the, the people. Uh, a lot of times we focus on the monster itself. The monster theory is allowing us to say, okay, how does this culture use the monster? What does the monster tell us about their biases, their fears, their anxieties, alongside of just understanding monsters? Because ev almost every culture has monsters. We're obsessed with them from ancient times to modern times. And so monster theory is throughout all sorts of disciplines. So you can look at medieval history, at English, even medical studies will use monster theory sometimes. And so it's very interesting how much it's in film studies as well. But in terms of looking at monster theory, one of the problems is the term monster is we relate it back to the Latin monstrum. And monstrum is related to two other roots, which is monstrare and monere. So monstrare meaning to demonstrate and monere meaning to warn. And so there's this idea that the monster is a warning, maybe a sign from the gods. And so ancient understandings of monsters were not that they were evil. We've inherited that tradition, and yet we also haven't. Because if you think of something like the kids' movie Monsters, Inc., they're not evil. They're misunderstood, or they have a job to do. They're not inherently evil all the time. And so there is this kind of idea that the monster doesn't fit categories. We like to put it in a category of the evil being, and yet most cultures show their monsters to slip between our classifications. And sometimes you can't even name a monster. They don't have a name or that we give them a name as a way to domesticate them. And so monster theory is, I think, a rather fantastic way to think about divine beings in general. So I use it to look at divine beings, both that we might think of as benevolent or malevolent. So those that are on our side and those that we might consider not on our side. Yeah, I, I, as a quick aside, in the week since we agreed on this interview, uh, along the path that I take my dog on walks, on somebody put up a Slender Man out in front of their house, and and that one's still new to me. I'm 40. I think my son, when I told my son about it, he was like, "Oh," but the dog and I both are very uncomfortable with <laughs> with that thing just looming over us. And I've been thinking about it in relation to this, and I'm like, I don't know why that thing bothers me so much. And that's just me venting more than it is anything. Because I've been trying to say, okay, so is that like a, 
Is that a hybrid of something? It's different. It's way taller than it should be. Is it liminal? I bet you don't need to comment on Slenderman. That's me just kind of introducing these two categories that you use a lot in the book, which is hybridity and liminality. You did mention those understandings, but can you can you go into more depth about those two categories? Sure. I don't mind commenting on Slender Man because it reminds me of something I didn't bring up, which was the idea of the uncanny is also really important to monster theory. Uh, what does which, that mean? Well, huh? The uncanny is so there's a few like really important thinkers that have really shaped monster theory. Sigmund Freud is one of them. And he has an essay or a book called The Uncanny. And he talks about the idea that we are really disturbed by things that are not just different from us, but similar to us. And so when something is similar and it's familiar, but it's out of place, that can actually be even more scary or terrifying than something that is obviously different. And when you see a monster that's obviously not human, yes, you're scared of it, but we're also taken aback by monsters that look human enough, but there's something odd about them, something off. So Slender Man being taller than a human should be. So you can't categorize. Like you're like, is it human? Is it not human? I don't know how to treat this and how and what category to put it into okay I, i'm also thinking of of that description in terms of humor because what makes monsters inc work is they're scary because they're doing a job but that's really banal when we <laughs> when we get a look on the other side of the child's closet door we find out oh they just they have to live their lives and this is a necessity and they they haven't found a better energy source than this um it, are there humor and horror are they connected i understand you weren't talking about humor in the book so you can say pass if you want to but are those two connected at all i don't know uh because i haven't actually thought about that too much but i do think that how we construct monsters represents something about us so the fact that when you look at monsters inc and it, it means geared towards children it's and it's also deconstructing the idea of the monster in the closet or the monster under the bed so it is saying something about our fears and anxieties as a culture i think humor can do that uh for sure uh, and sometimes humor comes in with the idea of excess or something being too much and that's what monsters are as well so monsters in my discussion of trying to like talk about what a monster, I never want to get away from the fact that monsters actually are scary. A lot of times humor, humans fear the monster is because we're afraid of being eaten. And so when you see like a monster, usually the focus in films or books is on their mouth, like right? the gaping mouth with the, with the fangs or their talons on their hands because humans are actually terrified of what some people call the monstrous mouth, the idea that we'll be consumed by the monster. And so, yeah, so I think humor can play into it. Definitely slasher films. There is a sense of being horrified and yet you're also laughing because the violence is so gratuitous. So I think definitely you could see it there. Okay. And there's also something adorable, too, about something being a little bit off. I was watching a video of a monkey petting a kitten, and it was holding it like I would hold a kitten. And I, look, again, I, this these are digressions, but I'm trying to understand. It's a very primal part of us to be afraid of something, and it's a very primal part of us to be wooed by something, and it's a very primal part of us to find something funny. It, as, you're, as you were talking about that Freudian understanding, of the uncanny, it, it makes me think, wow, there's a, that's a weird nexus of all of these different things that are just very basic human interactions with the world would be the best way to describe it. I'm sorry, the uncanny, the liminal, the hybrid. Truth. This is why I mute the mic, by the way, because I will do this. 
Yeah. So in terms of hybridity, you're right. I do talk about hybridity and liminality all throughout the book, partly because I wanted to give myself some controls when looking at Revelation. I wanted to give myself a bit of a frame. So I wanted to say, what is a monster? And trying to define like what makes a monster, how do monsters behave, and how do we react to monsters? Those are three, I guess, main areas that I'm really interested in. And so I found, as I was looking at Revelation especially, was there seemed to be different categories for divine beings based on how people came to the text or how they perceived them. And this became very evident with something like the cherubim or the living creatures. So the cherubim in Ezekiel, but we have the living creatures, which are basically a reincarnation of them or a rethinking of them in in Revelation 4 and 5, where you have mixed creatures in heaven and you have animal and human. In Ezekiel, you also have those wheels with eyes on them. And so you have all sorts of mixing of categories. And yet when scholars, and this is very much not how John was reading them, but how actually scholarship is reading them as amazing and fantastically wondrous creatures. And uh, a lot of times the language of this is evidence of God's created order is used. And part of me was thinking, why do the cherubim get this special pleading as being wondrous creatures, whereas you have other mixed beasts in Revelation that are automatically ugly, deformed, abnormal. They are demonic even is some of the language that's used. And so I thought they seem to share a lot of characteristics. And so I thought, let's figure out what a monster is. And two of the categories I thought were most helpful were was the issue of hybridity and the issue of liminality. And then I wanted to apply that as a test case to all divine beings, regardless of any of my own presuppositions or how you know they've been traditionally read and to see what I came up with. And so for hybridity, that is simply the idea of mixing creatures together. And so I'm very interested in the idea of a monstrous anatomy or biology. And I get that from Noel Carroll's work. He's got a book called Philosophy of Horror. And he it's a really fantastic chapter where he talks about how do you build a monster? How do you make a monster? And he talks about the idea of fusion creatures, where you can put um, something like a sphinx, where you can have the body of, a, in the ancient world, the body of a woman with wings and a lion's body as well involved, or uh, even dragons would be fusions of serpents and, and some kind of wings or something like that. So this idea of the body is composite. So you're breaking categories by mixing creatures that should not be put together. But then fission is the idea that you can have animals and creatures that move from one state to another. So the idea of of a human who turns into a wolf, like the werewolf or something like that. So we have fission and fusion creatures. And he talks about all sorts of ways that monsters present themselves physically. So I wanted to apply that characteristic, first of all, because that's the more visual one that we can see in Revelation. And then I wanted to talk about liminality and the ways that monsters cross cosmic boundaries from heaven to earth to the abyss and back again. And and that is largely what is happening with the monsters in Revelation. But backing up for context, what's the purpose of Revelation? Like, why is this document being written? Is it just, is it predictive? What's happening there? So I usually, when I teach Revelation, I usually say the visions are not predictive, right? This isn't what is necessarily going to happen. These are possibilities. But I read Revelation very much as an Old Testament scholar. And so for me, Revelation fits in a lot with other prophetic visions of the divine council. And also it fits in with this idea of the conflict myth 
that is all throughout the ancient world and the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, where you have the God of Israel who fights against some kind of monstrous creature. And a lot of times people read it as a battle between order and chaos. I don't necessarily take that position. I'll, I nuance that a little bit. But this idea that God is going to protect the people by slaying the monster. So whether it's the sea that is personified as monstrous or whether it's an actual dragon that is slain. And Revelation to me fits very nicely in that line of the idea of looking to heaven for an answer in the midst of living under empire. Uh, and so for John and the other communities that John is somewhat a part of, like Jezebel and the Nicolaitans, they are living under empire and they're finding different ways to accommodate to the pressures of living under living under Rome and the imperial cult. And so this is a letter with multiple recipients, right? Addressing, comp like complimenting some, scolding others. So is that common in the ancient world to have a letter that's supposed to go to multiple different places? I don't know. And I don't know that I would call it a letter necessarily. So the beginning has the letters and then we go right into the visionary format. So there's a lot of debate about whether or not like how what the genre of revelation is because it presents itself as an apocalypse and as a prophecy and then we have letters so it has itself is a bit of a mixed bag in terms of all sorts of genres are being meshed mixed up together and even john's use of the old testament is people will say it's the book that has the most allusions to the old testament and yet you can never pin it down because you might say oh definitely revelation 13 is drawing on daniel 7 but then you're like but there's also a little bit of ezekiel in there there's a little bit of this so he's mixing up all sorts of things together is there a literary or a structural break between the portions that are like epistolary and the rest of the letter or should we see it all as a piece is this okay is it like an email to multiple people with a couple of attachments is that i know it's not literally that is that helpful <laughs> so the idea of the structure of revelation is also difficult so you can read a whole bunch of different scholars there is so many ideas about is revelation linear like from chapter one till the very end or is it cyclical? Do we actually hear the same story three different times, especially in the visionary material? There's Jamie Davies did a paper recently on this comparing the structure of Revelation to uh, Christopher Nolan films. And it was very interesting because he was talking about the nonlinearity of the structure. So there's a lot of work being done right now on how do we read the structure? Because it's it doesn't seem like it's linear at all. Okay, that's frustrating. <laughs> I'm trying to... But it's very interesting, even in like chapter 12, where you get two battles that happen. So you have the dragon that comes to attack the divine world. And then you have, it seems like an insertion within that myth of the dragon's attack on the woman who's about to bear a child. So there even seems to be in one chapter, a bit of a break in terms of the linear reading of it. I'm glad you brought up the dragon. If I close my eyes and I picture this dragon, am I going to see the one from The Hobbit? You will see the one from The Hobbit because that's how you've been programmed to see the dragon in oh, Revelation. Well, no, but based on this, how we should see this dragon, would I would I see Smaug? Yeah, that's actually when, one of the things I'm very interested in is how clear is John when John describes 
monsters, but specifically the dragon, because there is a bit of ambiguity in his descriptions. And so the I found it very helpful to try to understand what do the ancients think dragons were. And for them, they're pretty much just really big snakes or big serpents. And that is how they're usually characterized. But sometimes when you get to the mythological texts, especially the Greek texts, dragons can be mixed or composite. And so there's someone named Typhon who is, he's got the like the torso of a human and yet he has like snake, like his lower body is all snakes and many of them. And, and so you could have snakes that are both like, it's like, it's called like a pure dragon. It's just like serpent material. Or you can have mixed dragons, which are, could be human and snake. Sometimes like human, snake, and dog are as a combined. But even someone like Medusa falls under the technical category of the dragon because she's a human with the snake hair. And so she's got dragon components to her, her body. That's so weird. <laughs> that, I don't know where to go <laughs> from there. I can really? also say is I always ask my students, do dragons have wings? And so that's actually how I get its conversation. Like, does the dragon in Revelation have wings? It doesn't tell us. The dragon may have wings and may not have wings. It does talk about the fact that the dragon attacks heaven, and yet there are ancient dragons that are so large that their bodies encircle whole mountains in ancient Greece. So really, they're so big, do they even need to have to fly? And so not all dragons have wings. Not all dragons have feet. There's some research that shows that some dragons are more like sea monsters, so may have more like fish-like attributes to it. So the dragon is a very interesting composite of the Hebrew Bible, but also the ancient world. And so John is mixing a lot of different traditions here. And it's not always clear which he is prioritizing. And he's basically making up, not making up, he's creating all sorts of these fusion beings from all these different traditions. He's synthesizing. Yes, synthesizing, okay. yes. I'm glad I could help you. But it, okay, so there's some contention over that. And I don't have the quote in front of me, so I will paraphrase. I think it was Beale that you referenced saying it's ridiculous or he used some really strong words, which I, I don't know. I'm not an expert, but is it ridiculous that John is using pagan symbolism here? Yeah, I think his word is it is absurd. Absur think, okay, that's still a little bit no, I, static. Yeah, we're the language is so strong here. Yeah. And and to his credit, like Beale's work is really focused on looking at how Revelation is using the Hebrew Bible. So that is his focus. But the language that it's absurd is it, it really flies in the face of a lot of the evidence that there is so much reuse of ancient Near Eastern traditions in Revelation. Just like there's so much reuse of ancient Near Eastern traditions in the Hebrew Bible, like even the idea of the Leviathan, that great sea monster in Job or in the Psalms, is we talk about it as having some roots in the Ugaritic material. And so this idea of this other monster called the Lotan. So there's definitely lots of reuse. And it doesn't have to be a derivative thing. It's the idea that it's, I always call it their popular culture. It's what's surrounding them. And it's creative reuse. And it's I don't think it has to be a negative thing when we see other mythology being reused in, in the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament. But following that line of thinking, though, if John is in fact doing this, that speaks to his hybridity as well. And so some of the critique 
that he's giving against people he sees as his opponent, you're saying puts him in a, a not hybridity, I guess, a, a, in a liminal space that can, can you talk about? I don't, I'm not going to ramble about that. I will let you talk about that because you wrote the book. Sure. Yeah. It's interesting because John seems to be very clear in placing his boundaries between his communities and between the greater Roman Empire, specifically the imperial cult and how people are both participating or not participating. And one of the boundaries for him is the idea of eating food sacrificed to idols. So that seems to be a boundary that he has zero tolerance for. But the, the interesting thing about John is we don't really know who John is, right? He's John of Patmos. We're given that descriptor. We don't know much of his background. And a lot of times we read the book of John from John's perspective. So we are sympathetic with him. And we see his views as the only way into the text. But there's a lot of interesting work done, especially by feminist scholars and post-colonial scholars, of flipping the script a little bit and saying, is he actually an insider or is he an outsider to these communities in Asia Minor? Perhaps someone like Jezebel, who John identifies as a prophetess, is actually more of the insider, the one who actually has the trust of the community. And John is coming in and trying to fix what he sees as a problem. So it seems to a lot of scholars that there's a lot of kind of inner tensions within these communities and that John is trying to advance his own agenda that might be at odds with what someone like Jezebel or the Nicolaitans are already doing in those communities. And what indications do we have of what that agenda might be, what John's agenda might be. Definitely anything where he sees assimilation to empire. So the idea of not eating food sacrificed to idols, which is would be difficult not to do in the Greco-Roman world. There's been a lot of work done on how people would be part of trade associations where they would be eating together with people or a lot of times meat that you would consume might be first sacrificed at the local temple or even on like feast days and holidays of the empire, that's where you might actually get some of the richer food that would be would be something like meat, for example. And so it, it's not as easy as John makes it seem to just say no. And there seems to be also a little bit of irony to John saying, do not assimilate when we actually look at the book itself and notice that John has assimilated all sorts of ancient mythologies, but also perhaps even some Greco-Roman symbols and images are being attributed to God in heaven, but also to Jesus, especially like in the end of Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus is coming on this great world. This is the rider, faithful and true, who is on the great right horse. There seems to be a lot of similarity to Greco-Roman like military processions that are being given. But even in God's portrayal on the, the throne, there has been some a lot of work done on how this seems to be very much a reflection of the Roman Empire and how the emperor would be portrayed. I, but a lot of that, had, there's pretty good evidence, rather, that a lot of that language, the Evangelian language, the Perusia language, was already in use by Christians as something of a parody or a reversal of Roman approaches to how their empire expands. Yeah, so parody is difficult, I find, because sometimes it's hard to know, is John doing parody? Or is in doing parody, does he actually show 
how similar things are to one another. So in the book, I do question a little bit the use of parody and revelation, because I think sometimes, like, for example, you have a beast that was slain in chapter 13 of Revelation, like he's the beast is slain and yet living. We have a lamb representing Jesus who is slain and yet living. Is that a parody? Probably, but it also shows an uncanny similarity. So that's where monster theory would come in, where I would ask, what does this do in, in creating this parody? Does John actually create a monstrous double? Does John create um, a feeling of familiarity that is, is, you know, what is really the difference between the two? And so there's some issues with the way that John is assimilating the world around him at the same time that he's using really violent language against this woman named Jezebel. And again, we don't even know who Jezebel is. Jezebel is using an Old Testament name in a very derogatory way towards a female prophetess, or we think it's a female prophetess. We don't really know who this figure Jezebel is. And the language is quite violent against her. So there's there, you can definitely see there's a lot of tension that's happening in this community. Is there any sense that his... I'm not really sure how to... All of the analogs that I have for this in my head are, they're too contemporary to, to us to probably be applicable, but is it almost like figuratively, it, is there any sense in the, obviously he, sorry, everyone is hearing me think out loud right now. It, it's all good. I, I understand that the book itself as an apocalyptic text is largely figurative and this represents this idea or this institution or this person. I, I get that. But it is the, the sense of his violence or his violent language. Is that a thing that he think he thinks is going to appear in reality tangibly or is it a figurative thing as well? I don't know. The interesting thing about his language against Jezebel is that we find it all over the Hebrew prophets. And so a lot of times you have language where usually Israel is depicted as an adulterous wife and God as a husband. And when things are going well, it's a lovely marriage. But when Israel either worships other deities or makes like a, a political alliance that is like maybe with the Babylonians or the Egyptians, the prophets talk about Israel in very graphic terms as an adulterous wife or as even language of, like we use language of harlot or a sex worker, like it's just, it's very difficult language to read and how God then is very violent physically towards her, but also usually allows the sexual assault of this figurative female that is representing the nation. And so it's very much in line with an Old Testament idea of how we see this kind of marriage metaphor, both in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we have an Isaiah, and then you see it again in Revelation. And women in Revelation, definitely they're stereotypical. So you have, you have Jezebel, who is, who is she? But they're using Jezebel from the Old Testament, who does not have a good reputation, right? She's a foreign princess who brings in with her the worship of Baal. And the Deuteronomists of the Old Testament are not happy with that, even though if we look at it from her perspective, and not from the biblical perspective. She is just, this is how she's raised. She's being loyal to the God that she was born, the God that of her country that she was born into. And so really judging her negatively is, is problematic because when you only see it from someone like Elijah's perspective in the Old Testament. But her like stereotype, her persona is being applied to Jezebel in the New Testament. 
So we have these big stereotypes of women. And then we have the woman in Revelation 12, clothed with the sun and the stars, very much this Mary picture, very positive. And then we have the, I call her woman Babylon. Most people call her the whore of Babylon in Revelation 17, 18, which is a picture of the Roman Empire, of Rome, extremely negative, extremely graphic. And then we have the bride of Christ coming down. And again, more positive imagery being used. And yeah, John is thinking very much in these big stereotypes and these major images that he's drawing straight out of the Hebrew Bible and reusing them into his community situation. And again, apocalypses are not really meant to be predictive to tell you the future. They're really speaking into the community's present. And usually it's because a community is looking for something to change. And so for John, he's hoping and, and wanting a change from this idea. It's not to, to end this empire, to end this oppression. He feels that they're under. So I have a line of questions, but I will definitely deviate from that depending on what the answer to this is. Can, can you describe or can you explain how maybe we should understand what prostitution was at this period in this, this place in the world? Definitely not my area of expertise, but I did find the work of people like Stephen Moore very helpful here because... How you see woman Babylon in chapter 17 and 18, she's always seen as a neg negative figure oftentimes when we read her. And it's hard because she's what I'd say like a multivalent character. She operates on different levels. And so she represents Rome. And you hear about all the ways that Rome is taking advantage in terms of like the amount of the money they're taking, the slaves, the enslaved peoples. There's definitely a cost. And John is very clear about the cost of being under empire. And yet the portrayal of her is not necessarily as like a sex worker who has autonomy because she has a tattoo on her forehead. And so there's an argument that perhaps it's more of a, a, an enslaved person that is being portrayed here who is involved, who, who has been involved in this, in sex work. And so there's this interesting, she doesn't fit our categories very well. And so a lot of scholars, especially those womanist scholars, so usually African-American women who are looking at gender and class and race in their scholarship actually have some really interesting insights into her and saying, I, I see in her empire when I look at her and I think of all the ways my people have been oppressed by empire. And yet I also see the enslaved person in her and I see my ancestors in her and the way that she's being treated. So she's a very interesting character and I think gives us some insight into how these characters will shift and change depending on the perspective you bring to the text. Actually, that, that kind of helped. I don't think I steered you there, but where my mind was going. So I was thinking about, and I'm not sure if you've read it, but Haley Gabriel in JBL, she had an article about, really about Hagar and Sarah and how do we understand, like, how, how do you interpret that, that, that place in Galatians where Paul is talking about them? What is it? Galatians 4 and 5. How do you interpret that without assigning wickedness or evil or sinfulness to the, the flesh represented and some kind of ethereal or pure understanding of uh, Sarah as the, the spirit? And what you were saying made me think of that. And womanist theology comes up in that conversation. So th this episode will come out before that one, but womanist theology comes into that. So in my mind, I, I've been 
trying to get a better understanding of was prostitution the kind of entrepreneurial thing that I think people understand it to be in contemporary American society, which it's not even globally or even in an American context necessarily an entrepreneurial thing. It's not something that people have a whole lot of autonomy over. So the question of autonomy as it applies to, we'll say, woman Babylon, I'll adopt uh, your terminology. That's an issue there, you're saying. It can be. It depends on how you see it. Again, so one thing is womanist theology, I found very helpful as a lens, as I did post-colonial theory, because it's asking us to read the text from below. Even like feminist work, we read against the grain. And so it's, it's this idea of looking at the text from the underside and saying, okay, traditionally, we've adopted the perspective of John, or traditionally, we've looked at it only from this perspective. But is there something else here in the text? And so that's what I find the most helpful about monster theory is that how it meshes so well with things like post-colonial theory. And so you can, one thing with John is, I think you could tell I'm not the biggest fan of John and the way that he treats Jezebel. And even I find his, find the book extremely disturbing in terms of the violence that is given. But there are other post-colonial theorist who will say as much as John's rhetoric is disturbing, John is also a victim of empire. And so John has also this really interesting kind of prism when you look at him, because there's scholars who think that he is perhaps a refugee of the Jewish war. And so his experience, I think it's Timothy Beale who says he's experienced the, the shadow side of the Roman Empire. And, and so he's escaping from war. And as a refugee, he has a very different idea of what it's like to live under the Roman Empire. For the communities in Asia Minor that are being addressed at the beginning of the letter, those communities actually had a much more beneficial relationship with the Roman Empire. And so they didn't have the adversarial context that John may have had. And so I find womanist theory and postcolonial theory are really helpful to read in conjunction with something like monster theory, because you're asking about boundaries, you're asking who is being othered. And so when we look at woman Babylon and we see her only as a monster, it does, I think, say something a bit about the interpreter as well as how we're reading John. I'm blanking on who it was, but I read an article recently that kind of poses the question with regard to Pauline literature, but I think it applies more broadly. The question is, how many more letters from Paul or any biblical author would we have if there had not been pogroms? What we have is largely from communities that didn't suffer the kind of anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish attacks that drove them out and probably destroyed a lot of property. And it seems like that's the case here, right? This is preserved. These are two communities that aren't Jewish, right? And that critique of eating food sacrificed to idols, it kind of centers around Jewish food law or. Yeah, I don't know much in terms of, I don't work, I don't, as an Old Testament scholar, I don't work too much into the future after Revelation. But one thing is I find really fascinating is that I read Revelation as a Jewish book pretty much. And I found that incredibly helpful to do because I was always taught that it's in the New Testament, it's a Christian book. But when we read it solely as a Christian book, we bring that lens to the text. And I think that we miss a lot of the nuance there. And so this definitely does seem that this is a conversation happening among Jewish communities 
Now, Sarah Emanuel has a book out where she talks about the fact that these are Jewish communities who are following Jesus. They just have really different ideas on how to do that. And I find that a very helpful way to see that the splitting between Judaism and Christianity it hasn't happened yet. It's still off in the future. And so we're seeing kind of these communities wrestling with issues around identity. So it's not surprising to me that they're bringing monsters into it because monsters stand usually on the borders and the boundaries of identity. They usually show us what we consider taboo or prohibited. And so I think that John is using these monsters in a way to reinforce for the communities not to cross boundaries that he thinks are against what it means to be faithful. Okay. I will take a break from following every thread that comes up in my brain for a moment uh, onto some of the monstrous imagery. But first, demonic. Why is demonic not an appropriate word to use when you're understanding the, some of the monsters here in this book? So the word demon or daemon, like depending on if you're going to the Greek, is really, it, it's not... It doesn't actually mean a creature that's evil. If you go back into the Greco-Roman period, but even earlier, looking at some of the Babylonian material, they do have what you might consider as demons, but a lot of times they're simply minor gods. They're not necessarily, they don't necessarily have a division between good and evil the way that you might have in later Christian theology. And so even in the book of Revelation, a lot of the creatures that people like to give the category of demon to are never actually called a demon. So the locusts that come out of the abyss, for example, everyone calls them demons. Or even the forerunners of the apocalypse, people like to say, oh, these are demonic. But again, that's not what the text tells you. And that's definitely us reading something into the text. And definitely demon, people ask, is there really that much difference between demon and angel in terms of their categories? Because all these are all mainly minor deities and some act benevolently and some act malevolently. And even in the Old Testament, uh, you have all sorts of divine beings that act on behalf of God in ways that are pretty scary, like the destroyer in Exodus, who is the one responsible for killing all the firstborn children in Egypt. Or uh, you have an Ezekiel, uh, a set of angels who come out destroying and punishing. So this idea of destroying and punishing angels, it, it doesn't sound that much different than how we would describe demons. And so... There, there's definitely a lot of nuance when it comes to the word demon. And so some of these creatures that people would describe as demonic, you point out are acting on behalf of heaven. Absolutely. So that was actually um, probably the chapter I started with was trying to map out all the divine creatures using like the ideas of hybridity and liminality. And, and so one chapter I have, I think I call it Uncovering the Divine Army. And so I argue that most of the destruction, most of the judgment that happens in Revelation comes not from the abyss. It actually comes from the abyss. It doesn't come from someone like the devil or the dragon. It comes from God in heaven. And so I argue that you have really God at the center of John's universe. He's very clear that God is at the center of this universe for him. But then God has a series of helpers, whether it's the lamb. And again, the lamb is interesting looking with like many horns and many eyes. It's dead and yet it's alive. It's able to walk across and pick up a scroll and open it. So definitely a very monstrous portrayal. That sounds super normal. <laughs> Absolutely. And again, like you can have like sheep that have many horns. So it's, it, there, there's like a familiar and an unfamiliar aspect to it. But then you have the living creatures, which you've discussed, are 
to me, mixed monsters. They absolutely fit that definition. And then we have things like the four riders of the apocalypse who come and they come at the behest and the command of the living creatures. And that's all inaugurated by the opening of the seals that the lamb opens. So there's definitely like a real chain of command that we follow. And from there, you also get beasts and creatures coming out of the abyss. But in each case, they're actually doing the the work of God. They're actually not working for the dragon or for the beasts. And a lot of scholars, there's one in particular who talks about this idea of God uses these creatures, but they're not really good. There's a bit of an embarrassment when it comes to seeing God's close relationship to creatures that are so obviously dangerous and so obviously monstrous. Is the text just silent on that, though? Is it saying they don't belong to God? They're not his. They just they're contractors. So the interesting thing is, and I haven't figured this out yet, but is the idea of the abyss and how the abyss fits in with the cosmic world, because it's pretty clear. I think it's in chapter nine where you have a star that falls from heaven. And then the, the abyss is open by this being. So the idea of this angel as a star is opening up the abyss. And from there, you get the locusts arising and you have other creatures that are coming out of the abyss. And again, it seems like heaven is pretty directly controlling these creatures, whether or not they are being contracted. That's fine. But I don't know that they are. They're definitely not in the service of the dragon. And I think that's, I think what I wanted to correct was that a lot of times we think that the dragon is the one to be most feared. In fact, I think it's pretty clear that the people fear the lamb and God in Revelation. There's a, I guess in chapter five or six, where it talks about the wrath of the lamb, that people are hiding in caves and rocks because they're so scared of the wrath of the lamb. Uh, and that's not language where you, that people are usually used to when they think about presentations of Jesus in the New Testament. But there's definitely this idea of Tina Pippin talks a lot about this, like apocalyptic horror and apocalyptic fear. Uh, and that's actually another characteristic of recognizing monsters is how do people react to the monster? So when people see angels, they fall down as if dead. I think Daniel in the Old Testament takes to his bed for a whole week because he's sick to his stomach after meeting an angel and seeing his apocalyptic visions. And you get the same thing with John in Revelation. He's always like falling over. An angel has to help him up. Terrified by his, he's terrified by all of the things that are happening to him. And so yeah, so the fear of these creatures is another indication that we're coming face to face with the monstrous. I think it says a lot about the audience though of us as readers, our contemporaries as readers, understanding revelation and kind of glossing over where some of this destruction and the fearfulness is coming from and where it's aimed at. Because I know our understanding of angels is like, it's Della Reese and Michael Landon, which are, I'm pretty sure I don't have any young listeners really, but that is, I guess if you're younger than 35, you probably not aren't going to get those references. But they're much softer. They're not scary. And even in places of the Bible where I'm, I'm thinking about, even in the Gospels, when angels appear, it's it's scary. It gets your attention. Yeah. I don't know. When, when you first started talking about the audience for monsters, I hadn't thought of this before, but I've heard people explain the importance of Godzilla when that movie first came out in Japan and how that was mm. capturing a lot of anxiety that that carried over from the end of the war, from the drop in the atomic bombs confusion and mourning even for what had happened in the war 
sorry i'm just trying to collect a bunch of thoughts all into one so you, you had you, you're just stuck here listening to me do that but the angels which is interesting is like even the term angel isn't helpful like just even like why is that i think i know why, what you're gonna say but why is that because we're using like we're using a Greek term or like later on the Latin term to like to talk about Old Testament characters that are very diverse. And so the idea of an angel or like the Angelus is that it's related to the idea of the messenger. And we do have messengers in the Old Testament, like we call them the Malachim. And we have messengers who definitely bring messages from heaven to earth, that in the Gospels with the Annunciation. So we definitely have messenger deities or messenger minor deities. But the idea of like angel as like one like holistic kind of terminology to try to express the diversity of divine beings in the Old Testament really falls apart. And so, for example, the cherubim in Ezekiel are not angels. They are some kind of divine creature, but they're not messenger angel or messenger deities. But we also have creatures that are called plague and pestilence in, in Habakkuk that seem to come alongside God. We have lying spirits. We have all sorts of different spirits and creatures that accompany God all throughout the Old Testament. And so, yeah, so the term angel it, it, it just, it falls short of expressing how deep, like the types of roles these creatures play. And same thing with the word monster. Really, the fact that we're using monster as a term to describe ancient monsters is a little bit anachronistic because we're using a Latin term to try to explain Hebrew creatures or Babylonian creatures or Greco-Roman creatures. And so these cultures didn't use the term monster. They had their own like native terms that they would use. And on top of that, all of the the baggage and the meaning that the words have come to have in, in our society. Because if I if when I said monsters to people, as I was, I'm so excited, I get to do this interview, and 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 even when I was reading the book, I was still like, it's really interesting. I would have to, the way she talks about it, it means this, and and I was trying to shoehorn the conversation back toward hybridity and liminality, and that was tough because I'm still trying to understand like monsters that I think is so like Freddy Krueger. So yeah, he's, he's like in the dream world and, and that's, it's tough. Do we have like in contemporary American society, do you feel like a horror? You said there's seven categories and I understand <laughs> you're not here to brief me on as thoroughly as possible on monster theory necessarily. You, you wrote a, a very specific book. I'm just trying to wrap my head around conceptually going forward understanding a monster does this apply do you think when we hear when we hear a person referred to as a monster oh what a monster he did this horrible thing yeah i'm not a fan of using monster language for people because i think there's precedence in history of it being really dangerous and so a lot of people work in monster theory work in terms of like how monster theory is used to dehumanize people and that's why monster theory plus colonialism work really well together is both are concerned with the issue of the other. And so when you see someone as other, as maybe not human or not as special as you are for whatever reason, whether it's race or gender or your orientation, it's very easy to dehumanize that person and to start language, even using language of it, that person no longer gets to be, pronouns are no longer applied to that person. And so you'll find all sorts of places where in history, different people groups, even in the artwork, their features are slightly shifted to make them less human, perhaps more like an animal in appearance. And so there's a really terrible history, even in Christianity, of using 
of using monsters to dehumanize others. And so I don't love that language when we apply it to people. But one thing I would have, I was going to say about one of your questions earlier is that when we talk about monsters, like the seven theses that Cohen has, I don't think he's meant them as like prescriptive. They're meant to be as a bit of a guideline. So he was putting signposts out for people to follow rather than being prescriptive in terms of like, how do we figure out what monsters are? But one monster I find extremely helpful when I teach my students is a lot of times the monsters that people bring up are usually the more malevolent ones, the ones who are a little more scary, but the ones who are definitely going to eat you. And I think that's the important thing about when I talk about monsters or even if we talk about Jesus having being a monster, having monsters imagery is it doesn't diminish that being's danger, right? All monsters are usually dangerous. It's just, it's the idea of who are they working for and how do you see yourself in, in, in relationship to that monster? So a really helpful one is the monster Cerberus in Greek mythology, who guards the gateway between Hades and Earth. And his job is really to prevent people from leaving Hades. And so really, is Cerberus evil? He's just doing his job. Yes, he's in service to Hades, who is a deity. Again, we might see Hades as more of a negative figure, but again, Hades has a job to do as well. And so Cerberus has many heads, whether it's three or 50, depending on the source. He's dangerous. He'll eat you, but you're also not supposed to leave. So there's the interesting thing about monsters is really looking at it from whose perspective are you looking at the monster? How is the monster functioning in the text? And usually what borders is the monster straddling? And what does that tell us about that culture's fears? So one, I won't say monster, but it does come up in terms of people, Tiamat. So I was not familiar with Tiamat until a few years ago in the Expanse science fiction book series. One of the books is called Tiamat's Wrath. And it's really like something bigger than us is very unhappy with things that people are doing. And I think that's where that book gets its title. So can you talk a little bit about Tiamat? Because that was a part of the book that, that stood out to me. Explain who is Tiamat and why should or shouldn't people think of Tiamat as a monster? Absolutely. I think the person who really opened my eyes to this was Timothy Beale. And if anyone wants to get started in monster theory, his book, I think it's called Religion and Its Monsters, is a fantastic starting place. And he really does this work of looking at monsters as both figures of awe and figures of horror, that they straddle both, right? They don't fit into a category. And so a lot of times biblical scholars, when we look at texts like Revelation, Ezekiel, and this idea of God who is defeating a monster, this is called the conflict myth. And we find it throughout the ancient world. But originally, a lot of people went to Babylon for like the direct source of where to find these myths. In more recent years, people have nuanced that a lot. And a lot of people also look at the myths from Ugarit, which is geographically much closer to Israel and also has its own like mythology and its own conflict myth as well. But originally, people would go to Babylon and they would look at a text called the Enuma Elish, which is a text that really describes two uh, deities in combat with one another. But because people were predisposed to read the text as the preferred deity who is battling the monster, especially from the biblical text, they imported these ideas into the Enuma Elish. And so the main deity there, Tiamat, is the mother of the goddess of the gods. And we don't really know what her form is. She seems to have some kind of watery form, like she's the kind of the original place where Genesis happens. But she has a mate 
and her mate is slain and killed. And so in response, she decides to mount up an army and her army is full of hybrid monsters. It's like this fantastic list of all sorts of mixed creatures who are really terrifying. And she basically is rightfully angry that her mate has been killed. And on the other side of that are, is another group of the deities who, again, are her descendants, and they uh, raise up Marduk to battle against her. And so typically when biblical scholars were reading this, they read it as Marduk is the young hero who is going to slay this dangerous female god of disorder. And usually they would actually picture Tiamat as a dragon. There is some questions about whether or not she's even depicted as a dragon in the Enuma Elish, or if that's even something we've imported into the text. And so what I found really fantastic about Timothy Beale's work is he talks about maybe it takes a chaos monster to defeat a chaos monster. And what he does is he shifts the attention away from Tiamat because she is monstrous, but she's also a deity. She's the chief deity, one of the original deities. But he shifts her attention to Marduk and says it's actually pretty monstrous himself. He's got like four eyes, four ears. His body gleams like metal. He has these monstrous horses that I think one's called a charger or destroyer. And he is just as monstrous as Tiamat is. And at the end of the text, he's the one who slays Tiamat by splitting her body. And part of her body becomes the earth and part of it becomes the sky. And so a lot of people see a lot of similarities to the Hebrew Bible, where you have God splitting the seas or God splitting the body of the dragon. The thing that made me think of that, though, is that in the expanse, they explain something that they're doing. They're trying to figure out, like, is this just we need to determine, is this something we can kill or is it like dealing with the tides? But that idea of the sea as it relates to Tiamat, it could be either in, in her case, maybe that association with the sea, which is a dangerous place. So thinking of the sea, not just in terms of, oh, there are monsters in there, but that it itself is monstrous. Is that predicated on the notion of order? like an ordered society is secure and then outside of ordered society is vulnerable? Is that where we get some of these understandings of monsters? Perhaps. One of the interesting things about monsters is there's an awful lot of female monsters, especially in the Greco-Roman world, but also oh. in some of the Babylonian myths. We have a lot of female monsters who are very much demonized. Tiamat would be one of them. And so there's a whole like strain of monster theory that looks at the idea of how misogyny comes into the ways that we look at women as other, even women's bodies as chaotic, right? Like women's bodies are like some people talk about the idea of leakage, right? So like when women menstruate or when women breastfeed, like it's the idea of like women's bodies are even like Aristotle would talk about women's bodies in very negative ways. And so there's this idea that women's bodies were seen as not orderly in the ancient world. And so they were very much easy targets for this idea of monstrification of the female. But again, a lot of monsters, so I mentioned Ugarit a little while ago, they had all sorts of things around the sea because they were right on the coast and they had their god Baal was a storm god similar to how the god of the revival is also considered a storm god. And so even though the sea is chaotic, a lot of times the chief deity can at times also be associated with these chaotic forces. And so this binary between chaos and order is complicated. And I don't think it's as easy to say one god represents order, one god represents chaos. 
Yeah. At least not without any kind of contradiction. People do that. all. People say contradictory things all the time about why they're doing what they're doing. So it, it completely stands to reason that someone could claim to be trying to create or strengthen an ordered society and be doing something completely chaotic and irrational. But and this might read may not even be original for the ancient audience, right? That's those sometimes those binary ways of thinking are the ways that we're bringing it to the text. So even like something like good and evil is not really a descriptor for the Hebrew Bible and their sense of how the world works. That doesn't develop until much later um, in their theology. Uh, and so oftentimes we're bringing in these binaries and these like very strong dividers. Again, the angels and demons, I think would be another example of that, of how we're trying to put things in their boxes and their categories. And then when we have these creatures who straddle these boundaries, we don't always know what to do with that. And part of it is we try to domesticate the monster. So I think that's what's happening with our cherubim and our angels. We're domesticating them. We're taming them. We're making them just a little less scary. Just not those monsters over there. Those are still scary. <laughs> And it's because they're evil. But when did that, so when did the evil idea, the good and evil idea, when did that come in? You definitely start seeing it in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, definitely someone like Job talks about the good and the bad coming from God. There seems to be an acceptance that everything stems from God. There doesn't seem to be this great evil power who exists in the world. The way that you may have the development of the devil starting up in the New Testament, but very much finding its fulfillment in later Christian history. But a lot of people talk about contact with other empires. There's discussions about whether or not the Jewish people came into contact with things like Zoroastrianism after the Babylonian exile. That's very much debated because the sources are quite a bit later. But there's even the Qumran community and the Dead Sea Scrolls. They do seem to have a sense of two pathways or the sons of light versus the sons of darkness. So there definitely is like a, a beginning of this dualism, but I don't think it's as firm as what you find in later Christian theology and history. Yeah, I know Ryan Stokes' book, The Satan, clarified a lot of that for me. And even you mentioned Job, and I know you you teach Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. I, I grew up having this idea that, oh, it was God and Satan, and that's always there. But he was saying, no, that's what, like an intertestamental. I don't expect you to comment on this if you don't feel comfortable. That's not why, that's not why I asked you here. But the, seeing that gradual transformation over time, and oh, now it's this really developed character in Christian theology that these ideas develop and change over time, and that's okay, but you have to untangle. You specifically have to untangle some of that stuff for us, right? Yeah. So title character of the Old Testament is, it's an interesting one, right? Because it seems pretty clear in the Old Testament that this character is a member of the divine council or the heavenly court seems to work closely with God, has a job to do. A lot of people refer to him as, or them, we don't really know their gender, but they refer to them as like a prosecuting attorney. So whether or not this is like a specific divine creature or is this an office that creatures can fill, it's, it's really not clear who this is. Over time, though, this role then becomes an actual character. And so there's development that way too. But in Job, they're simply like wandering around, looking to make sure people are being faithful. And they bring up a really valid question to God. Is Job truly faithful? And God takes that up and allows this wager to continue and allows the Satan figure to inflict Job and Job's family. And the interesting thing is there's a whole line in there in the second 
conversation with the Satan figure where God says, you, you, did, you did this for no reason. And a lot of scholars are like, wait a minute, God, what do you mean? For no reason. And it seems to really affect the way that we're reading these texts of, was there a reason for Job's family to be killed? So it's a difficult text, Job, but it's also rather interesting, especially because the Leviathan and monsters show up there as well. And even at one point, <clears throat> excuse me, at one point, Job actually identifies as a monster. And he says to God, are you going to treat me like you do the Leviathan? There's a, a sense of him identifying as monstrous because of what he's been going through and how he feels that God is attacking him. What, what was Leviathan? Was that a broadly understood creature in the ancient world? Or is that a specific thing to a specific culture? So there's a lot of people go back to looking at Leviathan in terms of going back to some of the Ugaritic material where we see this Lotan, which seems to be some kind of like sea serpent, many-headed. And so it, that seems to be one of the places where we find that, the root of that. But there's other places in this idea of the sea serpent is all throughout the ancient world. And so the Leviathan, at least in the Hebrew Bible, seems to have... It seems to be some kind of dragon, some kind of sea serpent. The connection to the sea is very close, which is interesting because the great red dragon, Revelation 12, doesn't have that same connection with the sea. Um, there's a little bit of it, but it definitely is out in the wilderness and it's not, it doesn't seem to be as connected to the sea as the Leviathan. So often we think of the Leviathan in the sea and God's killing the Leviathan within the sea. But the Leviathan has all sorts of traditions associated with it. So, for example, like we see it in a more antagonistic relationship with God, whether it's God splitting it because it represents Babylon or another empire. And so that idea of splitting it is like a metaphorical idea of defeating the nation or defeating the empire that's oppressing Israel at the time. Um, but later on, you have traditions in Job, for example, where God seems to delight in this monster. And God goes on for a whole chapter about how beautiful the scales are and how shiny the teeth are and his eyes are fantastic. And it's like this love letter to Leviathan and later to Behemoth. And so there seems to be an adversarial relationship at times. And at other times, Leviathan is God's pet, which is a very interesting in terms of the theology that God is now in control of this monster, right? That all anything for Job is he gets this idea that God is in charge of everything, whether it is like chaos, whether it's order, God is in control of all of these things. And yet... Job really does struggle with seeing any kind of order in his own life. A relationship with a pet that complicated sounds more like it would be a cat, but I understand. <laughs> I, I understand if you, have to, if you have to stick to what the texts say, but if there's any possibility that it could be, because I've had cats and they are sometimes very hard to get along with. Um, so I, going back to the post-colonial thing real quick, does it, okay, I understand. We don't know for sure who John was, where he actually was. How does Patmos play into this? Is it just a place that's mentioned? Does it matter? Do we know how it was used at this roughly this time period? Yeah, Patmos is interesting because a lot of times we think of it as like John is in prison in Patmos. Like he's a political prisoner and he's writing on this secluded island. There's been a lot of research done into Patmos and there's a lot of people are questioning that that it likely is not a prison. He is likely not a prisoner. And really asking the question of like, how does Patmos play in terms of it? 
Does it matter that it's a real place or is it an imagined place? And so is this functioning in the text on a mythological level is, or is it doing both? Is it both earthly and cosmic? Because we have John, who is obviously acting as a prophet here, who experienced this vision on this island. And a lot of times prophets like Ezekiel are beside rivers, they're a little isolated, and that's where kind of the heavens are opened up and they experience divine revelation. So Patmos seems to be operating kind of an intersection of heaven and earth. Uh, and so John is in this kind of liminal position where he is both on earth and yet also is being brought up to see these visions. And Patmos seems to operate on that level. And so there's a lot of people that don't work into what was Patmos, how did it function in the ancient world? But definitely a lot of the, I think the most interesting stuff for me has been how is it functioning in terms of the cosmic geography and how does it, yeah, how is he even relating to the rest of the communities? Because he's writing these letters as an outsider, but almost pretending or acting as an insider, even though he seems to be on the outside of all these communities. Yeah. Okay. So that, that helps to transition into, he's taking on the mantle of someone who's inside of these communities as an authority to say, hey, this is how things ought to be. And pointing to, look, that em the empire's over me. So he he is post-colonially, or he, he is pointing up and saying, that's the bad guy. But you're saying there are people below him, and that's these people he's assuming authority over. And does it matter if he's is there an indication that he has a relationship with these people other than the fact that he's writing to them? It's not clear. And that's the thing is okay. we don't know enough about John of Patmos. We don't know enough about Jezebel. Even like Jezebel is a pseudonymous name. So we don't know. Is it an actual female prophet singular who stands behind this name? Is it a group of women? Is it simply, is it a man? We actually don't know who is behind this name. I like to think it's a prophetess. But again, like we just don't have that information. And then we have the Nicolaitans as well. But you can see that there, the Nicolaitans and Jezebel have some commonalities, whereas John is very much like on a different path than they are. And it's not surprising at this time that they're trying to figure out their identity, trying to figure out how to live under empire. And some of the work on post-colonialism is about that, is the difficulties of living at the crossroads of like, how do you succeed living under empire? And how do you, sometimes you have to adopt things to live under the empire, but other times you don't want to adopt things that might take you out of your heritage and out of your background. And so how far is too far? Like, where is the boundary? So John's boundary is much closer than perhaps Jezebel's boundary might be. So how about the Nicolaitans? Are they someone that there's any other record of? Do we know anything about them? Or is this just a reference that stands by itself? I don't know too much about the Nicolaitans. So I would definitely, I still think, again, we're not really sure if it's an actual name or if it's representing something else, but they seem to be the group that has is very ambiguous. I think a lot of work has been done on Jezebel, but definitely the Nicolaitans seem to be even more of a question mark behind them. So it's just tough. This book is tough. Even for experts, this is a tough book to work with, huh? It is. And it's also hard because in culture, like the book has been taken up and has been interpreted authoritatively, right? And in different parts of Christianity. And, and how. So, yeah. And so that makes it difficult to unpack and unravel like things that have been learned about the book. Because even to say we don't know 
who John of Patmos is. There's been traditions that he's one of the apostles or he's this person. Again, like a lot of it, we don't know. And the book itself, because it's so symbolic, it is easy to read into it, whatever you want to read into it. Um, and so that's part of the problem. So, so how much do you, so I know most of your teaching, as you said, is Old Testament Hebrew Bible. How much time do you get to spend teaching on this subject, though, on Revelation, on anything in the New Testament for that matter? I do very little on the New Testament. So Revelation, I... I honestly treat Revelation like an Old Testament book to the point where I forgot that I would have to start translating the Greek when I was writing the book. And I thought, oh, no, I have to translate in Greek, not Hebrew. But I just I very much read it in line with a lot of the traditions of the Hebrew Bible. I have taught on like the Synoptic Gospels before, but for the first time, I'm doing a class on Mary Magdalene and the reception of Mary Magdalene in church history and art and in popular culture, especially movies. So I have a few courses that straddle the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. I have another one on art and the Bible. And so I really love those courses because we get to to do a little more interdisciplinary work. So it's Bible, but Bible and art. And, and so in there, we definitely look at the New Testament. And Monsters is also straddling both because we end actually in Revelation at the end of Monsters. Okay. And they're liminal. So of course they're straddling. Okay, as books of the Hebrew Bible go, I think the as far as anything can be said to be simple, you can point to prophetic books. But as far as other books, like maybe the Pentateuch, how much do you get to look at Revelation and say, oh, there's, and I have Leviticus in my list of questions. There's Leviticus. How much of that do we see in here, in, in Revelation? Leviticus is... Leviticus is reused and reappropriated throughout the Hebrew Bible itself and then definitely into Revelation. And so I teach Ezekiel as part of the courses I teach. And I, I sometimes think I teach Leviticus just as much as I teach uh, Ezekiel as we're walking through that book. But yeah, no, Leviticus is very central, especially because how it is used to understand hybridity. And so the ways that we have read Leviticus often are through very much the angle of like Mary Douglas's work on purity and danger in Leviticus and a very important book. But a lot of times people just take out a little piece of it, which is where she says all hybrids are abominable, right? Like they're all despicable. All hybrids are wrong according to like this Jewish understanding of what is pure, what is impure, what is clean, what is unclean. But later in her work, she actually acknowledges that the cherubim, even though they're mixed, even though they're composite, they're also sacred. And she's got some really interesting things in her book about ways that communities center things that one would think would be unclean. They center them in their rituals, and then they become sources of tremendous power. She also talks about how there's places where she talks about dirt as something out of place or out of order. And she talks about how people will rename things that scare them and domesticate them into their systems of thought. And I think the cherubim fit in really well there. So Leviticus is really helpful when we talk about this idea of categories and boundaries. But uh, what I'm most interested in is when we see these categories and boundaries falling apart a little bit uh, and why they fall apart when we get to the cherubim or the seraphim or any other kind of divine creatures. Is the vision that we see in heaven, is that like a temple space? How should we understand that in Revelation? A lot of people will read it as a temple, especially if you look at another book called One Enoch, the Book of Watchers. Okay. So that would be a second temple book. It's actually the oldest Jewish apocalypse, so it predates the book of Daniel. 
And in there you have Enoch, who is taken up to heaven and he enters into, I think it's three series of doors. So it's very much replicating the idea of the temple in ancient Israel. And as he goes to these doors, things become weirder and weirder. And one thing, I can't remember which scholar says it, but they had this really lovely line of, we expect order in heaven. And yet in some of these texts, you have like snow and fire or ice and fire that are, are simultaneously happening, right? Like that, that, that breaks the laws of nature. And so this idea that heaven is completely orderly is something that breaks down sometimes when you read these texts. I was even thinking this morning about how loud heaven is. It, it's not necessarily the sanctuary where everyone is really quiet. We always hear about angels' wings being as loud as rushing waters or the voice of God like a thunder clap. So it's, I think our idea of heaven might not quite align with some of the things that we're reading in the text. So definitely temple imagery is there. And in Revelation, there's a lot of imagery of angels as priests. So there's the incense and the altars. There's the saints under the altar. So there's definitely images of angels acting as mediators between the martyrs and between God. And so that, that's also in the Old Testament where angels act as mediators, usually in a priestly function. There's one in Zechariah where the angels say to God, how long? Like, how long will this last? And then God gives an answer that goes through the angel to the prophet, to the people. So angels as mediators is quite common in these kind of like apocalypses in terms of temple imagery. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just like, how did we get so far off to be like, heavens, it's really peaceful and quiet and everything's orderly. And then it's, that's not what this says. So I don't know where you got that, man. Trying to just still trying to digest this book. And it's been a little while since I was actively reading it. And I looking over my notes this morning, I was like, I don't know. I don't know how well I'm going to be able to do crunching all my thoughts down. It's been a while since I wrote it. So I had to look it over to you. <laughs> yeah, but you already you started knowing more than I do. <laughs> I don't want to keep taking you down just whatever weird passage my brain opens up. Actually, I'll ask this before I go into recommendations from you. Is there something about the book that you wanted to discuss that I haven't brought up yet? I think with Revelation, Monster Theory is one way to read it. It's one lens. It's not the only lens. And so there's people who look at Revelation and look at like the epigraphy, like the ancient statues and all the inscri inscriptions to help us understand even Monster Theory. But a lot of times... I think that we're not aware of our biases when we read the text. And I found it really helpful to read with especially post-colonial scholars from around the world who look at the text very differently than I do. So to read with people who are from vastly different backgrounds than I, to see that, oh, okay, the ways that I've read it are more of a reflection of my background, sometimes in the text itself. And that's been a really helpful corrective to read with a community of scholars to read both with New Testament scholars, Old Testament scholars, to read with womanist scholars, I find that extremely helpful. And in Revelation studies, there is a fantastic amount of women and feminist and womanist scholars, post-colonial scholars working on this text. They're not always the ones writing the commentaries, but they're writing articles and they're writing books that are very fantastic. And so I think it's a really great time to be looking and working in Revelation because there's just so many new lenses being brought to the text that are opening it up. And part of it is like academic work is we're using lenses and to play with the text is not the right terminology, but is, is to advance a thesis or a hypothesis and to see where it takes us. And so that's what the, my book was about was what does monster theory give us? Like, how does it 
open the text in new ways. And some people said it makes them uncomfortable, like that they were like, what do we do with this now? Like, how does this like change our theology? How does this change things? And that wasn't the question I was dealing with, but I, I was just really curious about if we took this theory, what would come out of it? So I perhaps have been a bit of an agent of chaos when it comes to the book of Revelation, but I'm okay with that. So they come to you and they say, what do I do now? And you say, not a Heather problem. Figure it out. That's pretty much. Okay. Fair enough. Respect. It is difficult enough to pick my head up out of the water that I grew up in, which is this is a futurist text and here's how you understand it. And you can write novels and make movies about it. And it's all very specific and applicable to us. And to say, hey, that's, yeah, that's not right. And then you turn around and you look at the people who are doing serious study on this particular book. And it's, okay, so I just made my life a lot more complicated. And I'm not even doing this for a living. (laughs) You are writing a book about it. So that's got to be difficult. But books, podcasts, YouTube channels, where, where would you send people? And it doesn't have to be on the subject of this book. It could just be biblical studies is a broad area. Where do you think people should go to get a better understanding? So I have a few things down. I was thinking... When we read Revelation, even just getting a real strong sense of what an apocalypse is, because even the term apocalypse opens a whole can of worms. That is, it's a huge question that people have of what is an apocalypse? And someone I would recommend is Anathea uh, Portia Young's book, Apocalypse Against Empire. He met a couple of years ago. I found it extremely helpful. She looks at one Enoch and Daniel. She's the one actually who I first encountered monster theory in. And she talks a lot about empire studies and how we other people. And so I find her work really clear, really concise, really helpful. She walks through the text. I've already mentioned perhaps Deborah Ballantyne. Uh, maybe I can't remember if I already today, but Deborah Ballantyne's book, Conflict, Myth, and the Biblical Tradition. She walks you through all the variety of this battle between God and another deity. And she does a really great job of unpacking chaos and really questioning if chaos is in fact a good category to use when it comes to the conflict myth. And so she goes into the ancient Near Easter material, the biblical material, and I found her book immensely helpful. And then another person specifically on Revelation this time is Sarah Emanuel's book, Humor, Resistance, and Jewish Cultural Persistence in the Book of Revelation. And so you're interested in humor. So this is actually a nice tie-in. But she talks about the use of like parody and humor and and how people who have been marginalized use humor as a, a tool of resistance against empire. And so she does go into this idea of the inter- the kind of the John versus Jezebel and how they're negotiating their identity through through this. So she'd be another one. And then for someone just totally different, if you want an article to read that I thought was fantastic, Tom DeBruin's article, The Haunting of Jesus, Reading Mark Through the Gothic Mode, was one of the most recent articles I read that I was just, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. And so talking about specters and demons and how that helps open up a little bit of the messianic secret but reading it through the Gothic mode. So very much in the season of Halloween. Nice. Now, I've started doing this recently because I enjoy this question and it's my podcast. What do you read for fun? What do I read for fun? I have, I read a lot of different things for fun, but I guess lately I've been really into speculative fiction. And so I read a lot of dystopian lit, both classic and modern. I'm reading one right now called The Mountain and the Sea about... I think sentient octopuses or octopi. I think it's octopuses and I an AI 
So I've, I'm only 100 pages in, so I can't recommend it yet. But, but yeah, I've really been enjoying speculative fiction and even things like I read Hamnet, which is a feminist retelling of Shakespeare's wife. So yeah, so my interests are all over the place. They're both on the shelf behind me. <laughs> I forget what books I've bought. I, I've recently realized that it's okay to collect books. I like shopping for books. I do enjoy reading books, but considering the fact that I'm both working on school and I have a day job and I like to read for fun and I have this podcast, I, I don't get to read all the books behind me. And reading, reading for the podcast is mostly through Kindle because it's easier to send myself my notes. And I never thought I would say that. But so speculative fiction, I've heard that thrown around and I understand what you're saying. Obviously, a world that's populated by an advanced society of octopuses. That's a pretty good example of that. Are there other things that you aspire to read or that you have read in that area? So speculative fiction covers all sorts of things from fantasy to science fiction. And I definitely have read more fantasy probably in the past, but I just read The Sparrow, which is, I think, Maria Dora. I always get it wrong. I'll Russell. look it up. That's, yeah. It and, up. and that was about sending Jesuits to space to meet an alien race. And everything that happens there, but it really is a meditation on where is God in all of this. Okay. And, and so my favorite is when I can read fiction and actually not do work and school and all that stuff, but it, it gets to these really big questions about our identity and who we are. And then I can't think of, I also, I, at some point I would like to finish The Count of Monte Cristo because I thought I had read it and I always say it's my favorite book, but then I realized I had read the abridged version. So I no longer can say it's my favorite book because I had only read like a third of it. And so that's my, on my bucket list of things to do. You could say it, whatever. I didn't know I was, this was going to turn into a gotcha interview and I didn't know you were going to volunteer the gotcha, but <laughs> you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Heather McCumber yep. has been deceiving people since what? Childhood? How, oh, long yeah. has, how long has you have you been living the lie? Yeah, probably since grade eight. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I, for, I forgot you're Canadian and that you... It was like grade eight. Okay. Anything else you want to talk about before I let you go? I don't want to keep you all day, but this has been a lot of fun for me. No, I would just encourage people to start applying monster theory when they're watching their movies and they're reading books. I get emails from people all the time saying, have you seen this and have you applied monster theory to it? And usually the answer is no, because it's too scary. But I, I have been doing work on stranger things and monster theory. So that's been very fun to do because mm -hmm. it's just... It's it you realize how much monster theory because it's not tied to biblical studies. Monster theory is it can be used anywhere with anything really. So it's um, you can use it in your video games even. There's all sorts of places where one can apply these ideas of who is the monster. I will. I do want to take this opportunity to point out because I like to remind people when I'm telling them about this podcast. Biblical studies is so many things. It can be so many different things. And this is just a form of literary criticism, right? Monster studies, essentially. A, yeah. So it's literary criticism. It's film criticism. It's gender theory. It's And one thing I love about it is, and I'm, I don't know if I love reading philosophy, but I've been reading like Donna Haraway's work on the cyborg recently. 
And so you go into places you don't expect with monster theory, but that's the same for most biblical scholars. Many people read outside of biblical studies as a way of trying to interacting with the larger like academic world. And so for some priests, people like literary studies is really helpful when they're looking at character analysis. Like you're looking at how is David acting in this episode? But for other people, they're doing more sociological analysis or psychological, or some people do art history and Bible. So there's all sorts of ways. Some people are just looking at the Hebrew text and looking at the development of language. So it's we're all over the map. Yeah. I don't know that we can ever say that we're just anything, right? Like we're, there's, even if you're just bringing, see, there, even if you're only bringing your own baggage in your head, you're not just doing anything. We, you said, hold on, you said you're doing work on Stranger Things. Is this something that's out there? Is it published? It will be published. It's so it, it's with a press that does like popular culture and theology in the Bible. So I've I'm it's coming out probably next year, hopefully. So the article is written, but it's actually the paper I'm presenting at SPL in November. So a snippet of it will be in November. Cool. So I was to look at apocalyptic elements in Stranger Things. So I'm looking at time and space in the series and then how it helps us read Revelation. I'm really, this is going to be my first SBL and I'm going with a friend who's been to them before, but I just feel like maybe this is the wrong approach. Just like I'll be wandering around and trying to find stuff to do, but I don't, I'm looking at the schedule on the app and I don't think that's going to be possible. It just seems like it's booked wall to wall, right? It is. And you should take breaks and go to the the book exhibit. The book exhibit is fantastic. Okay. I will do that. that's where you meet people is you're wandering around, you're looking at books and you run into people. So oftentimes that's a place where a lot of people uh, will find people. And yeah, the there's so many good sessions happening. And I'm excited about them, but you also can be very overwhelmed. Like sitting, listening to five papers can be a lot if you do more than one session a day. So. I will pace myself. Heather McCumber, <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay. Take care. Yes, you do. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and rate the podcast on your favorite platform. If you are interested in following, supporting, or engaging with the podcast anywhere else, check out the link tree that I've hyperlinked in the show notes. Take care.